Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast, 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey. I'm a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. The selections that I'm going to be reading over the next several episodes come from The Social Basis of the Woman Question, which was a book that was published in 1909. It was written as Alexandra Kolontai was uh, in exile. And for many people, it is one of the foundational documents of socialist feminism. I believe, you know, for many people who came after Kolontai, she was really kind of laying down the broader framework that people would need in order to understand the difference between what she called bourgeois feminism and what we call socialist feminism, or she might have just called women's activism within the Social Democratic Party. Now, it's important to understand that in 1909, Alexandra Kolontai was herself a Menshevik. She was a social democrat, and she very much believed in the idea of the Social Democratic Party coming to power through parliamentary processes. Now, of course, as we know, the Social Democrats betray the internationalist cause in the beginning of World War I, and then because of her opposition to the war and because of her opposition to the way that the Social Democrats behaved during World War I, she, Alexander Kolontai, becomes a Bolshevik. She throws in her lot with Lenin and Trotsky. But this essay, or the selections of this essay that I'm going to be reading over the next couple of episodes, were written before the betrayal of the Social Democrats, before World War I, when there was still quite a lot of idealism around the role that a Social Democratic Party could play. And I think not only is this an interesting text for us to read in 2019 because of Kolontai's discussions of feminism versus socialist feminism or socialist women's activism, but also because this debate about, you know, the the Menshevik way versus the Bolshevik way, the social democrat versus the socialist, I think that's actually starting to happen on the left again in the United States. You know, not surprisingly, 110 years later, we're still talking about this dichotomy of reform versus revolution or some kind of direct action versus parliamentary politics. And I think this is a really tricky issue. I don't think anybody has solved it. And obviously, if we think about it, you know, political expediency is often related to the unique circumstances in which we find ourselves, given, you know, the the, the very different world of the 21st century than the early 20th century. So I think that all of us, I hope, can be a little bit left fluid in our ideologies. This is a term that I'm playing with these days because I think that we're really into fluidity of all sorts of other identities. But unfortunately, on the left, we tend to be very fixated on certain identities and certain ideologies. And I think we could all be, we would all be a lot better off if we just sort of accepted that there are lots of different ways of thinking about these problems. And there have been for the history of the left and rather Rather than arguing with each other and amongst ourselves and, you know, lining ourselves up or putting ourselves into circular firing squads, as the saying goes, that we should actually try to embrace a sort of left fluidity. And I think that in some ways, Kolontai is the paradigmatic example of left fluidity because precisely she starts out as a Menshevik. She eventually becomes a Bolshevik. And then I would say that later in her career, you know, during the workers' opposition, she sort of aligns herself what we would, with what we would think of as the anarchists. And then in the end, she sort of capitulates herself to Stalin and, and, and then just sort of grows old and becomes a diplomat and, you know, dies before she really sees the world that she was envisioning because of 
course, for her, this new ideal world would be an ideal world where love and relationships were completely unmoored from economic considerations. And as we know, nowhere in the world did that happen or has that happened. But Colin Tai stayed true to her ideals and her vision of the future, and I think that she was very open-minded when it came to different leftist positions. She obviously read very widely. We know she was heavily influenced by August Babel and Frederick Ingalls, but I also think she was very well aware of other sorts of debates that were going on in Europe at the time, in these early years of socialist theory formation. So her position as a writer, as a thinker, and as a theorist, especially in this 1909 essay, The Social Basis of the Woman Question, really shows us how she is thinking through her ideas and how she starts as a social democrat and then slowly moves to the left, becoming more and more radical as the situation demands of her. So I'm going to read the first section of this essay. As I said, I think this essay is going to take quite a few episodes. Therefore, my plan, such as it was with Make Way for Winged Eros, is to read this piece over several episodes. And then because it's so important to try to rustle up some guests to discuss it, because I think that we are still struggling with many of the same questions that Colin Tai was struggling with back in 1909 when this piece was first published. Leaving it to the bourgeois scholars to absorb themselves in discussions of the question of the superiority of one sex over the other, or in the weighing of brains and the comparing of the psychological structure of men and women. The followers of historical materialism fully accept the natural specificities of each sex and demand only that each person, whether man or woman, has a real opportunity for the fullest and freest self-determination and the widest scope for the development and application of all natural inclinations. The followers of historical materialism reject the existence of a special woman question separate from the general social question of our day. Specific economic factors were behind the subordination of women. Natural qualities have been secondary factor in this process. Only the complete disappearance of these factors, only the evolution of those forces which at some point in the past gave rise to the subjugation of women, is able in a fundamental way to influence and change their social position. In other words, women can become truly free and equal only in a world organized along new social and productive lines. This, however, does not mean that the partial improvement of women's life within the framework of the modern system is impossible. The radical solution of the workers' question is possible only with the complete reconstruction of modern productive relations. But must this prevent us from working for reforms which would serve to satisfy the most urgent interests of the proletariat? On the contrary, each new gain of the working class represents a step leading mankind towards the kingdom of freedom and social equality. Each right that woman wins brings her nearer the defined goal of full emancipation. Social democracy was the first to include in its program the demand for the equalization of the rights of women with those of men. In speeches and in print, the party demands always and everywhere the withdrawal of limitations affecting women. It is the party's influence alone that has forced other parties and governments to carry out reforms in favor of women. And in Russia, this party is not only the defender of women in terms of its theoretical positions, but always and everywhere adheres to the principle of women's equality. 
What, in this case, hinders our equal writers from accepting the support of this strong and experienced party? The fact is that, however radical the equal writers may be, they are still loyal to their own bourgeois class. Political freedom is at the moment an essential prerequisite for the growth and power of the Russian bourgeoisie. Without it, all the economic welfare of the latter will turn out to have been built upon sand. The demand for political equality is for women a necessity that stems from life itself. The slogan of access to the professions has ceased to suffice. Only direct participation in the government of the country promises to assist in raising women's economic situation. Hence the passionate desire of women of the middle bourgeoisie to gain the franchise, and hence their hostility to the modern bureaucratic system. However, in their demands for political equality, our feminists are like their foreign sisters. The wide horizons opened by social democratic learning remained alien and incomprehensible to them. The feminists seek equality in the framework of the existing class society. In no way do they attack the basis of this society. They fight for prerogatives for themselves without challenging the existing prerogatives and privileges. We do not accuse the representatives of the bourgeois women's movements of failure to understand the matter. Their view of things flows inevitably from their class position. And now the next section is called the struggle for economic independence. First of all, we must ask ourselves whether a single united women's movement is possible in a society based on class contradictions. The fact that women who take part in the liberation movement do not represent one homogenous class is clear to every unbiased observer. The women's world is divided, just as is the world of men, into two camps. The interests and aspirations of one group of women bring it close to the bourgeois class, while the other group has close connections with the proletariat, and its claims for liberation encompass a full solution to the woman question. Thus, although both camps follow the general slogan of the liberation of women, their aims and interests are different. Each of the groups unconsciously takes its starting point from the interests of its own class, which gives a specific class coloring to the targets and tasks it sets itself. However apparently radical the demands of the feminists, one must not lose sight of the fact that the feminists cannot, on account of their class position, fight for the fundamental transformation of the contemporary economic and social structure of society without which the liberation of women cannot be complete. If in certain circumstances the short-term tasks of women of all classes coincide, the final aims of the two camps, which in the long term determine the direction of the movement and the tactics to be used, differ sharply. While for the feminists the achievement of equal rights with men within the framework of the contemporary capitalist world represents a sufficiently concrete end in itself, Equal rights at the present time are, for the proletarian woman, only a means of advancing the struggle against the economic slavery of the working class. The feminists see men as the main enemy, for men have unjustly seized all rights and privileges for themselves, leaving women only chains and duties. For them, a victory is won when a prerogative previously enjoyed exclusively by the male sex is conceded to the fair sex. Proletarian women have a different attitude. They do not see men as the enemy and the oppressor. On the contrary, they think of men as their comrades, who share with them the drudgery of the daily round and fight with them for a better future. 
The woman and her male comrade are enslaved by the same social conditions. The same hated chains of capitalism oppress their will and deprive them of the joys and charms of life. It is true that several specific aspects of the contemporary system lie with double weight upon women, as it is also true that the conditions of hired labor sometimes turn working women into competitors and rivals to men. But in these unfavorable situations, the working class knows who is guilty. The woman worker, no less than her brother in misfortune, hates that insatiable monster with its gilded maw, which, concerned only to drain all the sap from its victims and to grow at the expense of millions of human lives, throws itself with equal greed at man, woman, and child. Thousands of threads bring the working man close. The aspirations of the bourgeois woman, on the other hand, seem strange and incomprehensible. They are not warming to the proletarian heart. They do not raise the proletarian woman that bright future towards which the eyes of all exploited humanity are turned. The proletarian woman's final aim does not, of course, prevent them from desiring to improve their status even within the framework of the current bourgeois system. But the realization of these desires is constantly hindered by obstacles that derive from the very nature of capitalism. A woman can possess equal rights and be truly free only in a world of socialized labor, of harmony and justice. The feminists are unwilling and incapable of understanding this. It seems to them that when equality is formally accepted by the letter of the law, they will be able to win a comfortable place for themselves in the old world of oppression, enslavement and bondage, of tears and hardship. And this is true up to a certain point. For the majority of women of the proletariat, equal rights with men would only mean an equal share in inequality. But for the chosen few, for the bourgeois woman, it would indeed open new doors and unprecedented rights and privileges that until now have been enjoyed by men of the bourgeois class alone. But each new concession won by the bourgeois women would give her yet another weapon for the exploitation of her younger sister, and would go on increasing the division between the women of the two opposite social camps. Their interest would be more sharply in conflict, their aspirations more obviously in contradiction. Where, then, is that general woman question? Where is that unity of tasks and aspirations about which the feminists have so much to say? A sober glance at reality shows that such unity does not and cannot exist. In vain, the feminists try to assure themselves that the woman question has nothing to do with that of the political party, and that its solution is possible only with the participation of all parties and all women, as one of the radical German feminists has said. The logic of facts forces us to reject this comforting delusion of the feminists. The conditions and forms of production have subjugated women throughout human history and have gradually relegated them to the position of oppression and dependence in which most of them existed until now. A colossal upheaval of the entire social and economic structure was required before women could begin to retrieve the significance and independence they had lost. Problems which at one time seemed too difficult for the most talented thinkers have now been solved by the inanimate but all-powerful conditions of production, the same forces for which thousands of years enslaved women now, at a further stage of development, are leading them along the path to freedom and independence. 
That's the first section of the selection from the social basis of the women question that I'm going to read. And I think it's really important to pay attention to, of course, her attacks on the feminists, which we have heard on this podcast before. Obviously, she's trying to make a distinction between the feminists and the social democrats or the socialist activists. And I think what's really key about this essay is not only her discussion of the natural alliances between proletarian women and proletarian men, their interests are not at odds with each other. It's a very sort of simplistic analysis, to be sure. She definitely elevates class over gender, over any other consideration. And in this respect, she's not as intersectional as we might want her to be in 2019. But she is writing in 1909, and she is basically trying to convince women, trying to convince proletarian women that men are not the enemy and that the bourgeois feminists are really looking out for their own interests and not really challenging this larger structure of oppression that the abolishment of which will liberate all people, not just women. So in reading this essay and thinking about the work of somebody like Nancy Fraser, for instance, who talks about the politics of recognition versus the politics of redistribution. Obviously, Kollontai here is talking about a sort of politics of redistribution, a politics of destroying the system that creates oppression in the first place, rather than just tweaking the system to make sure that representatives of all groups have access to a possibility of being in the 1%. So I think, you know, when we think about the contemporary moment, you know, there's there's a sort of position in which we say, okay, there's always going to be a 1% in our society. And what we want to ensure is that we have a rainbow 1%, that representatives of all groups in society have the same opportunity of becoming a member of the 1% as anybody else, that there's no discrimination on the basis of race or ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation or disability or any number of other kind of identity categories. But these people don't stop to question the existence of the 1% and the 99% that are excluded from this sort of world of wealth and privilege. The worldview of sort of the rainbow 1% is that it's natural that our economic society is going to flourish if we have a 1% versus a 99%. And that the key goal of, of social movements is to make sure that the 1% is representative of our society in some egalitarian and fair way. But the fundamental contradiction in this whole worldview is the 99%, obviously, that, that why do we need to have these huge inequalities and divisions in our society? This is precisely what Kolontai is talking about in this essay. It's obviously hard to see because she's talking very specifically about the situation of feminism and social democracy in Russia in 1909. But at the core of her critique is this idea that we don't just need to give people more privileges to join a very elite group of people at the top, we need to actually expand our vision of society so that we live in a world where everybody has more opportunities and that there aren't these stark divisions. So that's it for this first part of the social basis of the woman question. I'm Kristen Godsey. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, like, review, do whatever it is you do to show approval to podcast content and keep up the good fight.